You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. If you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 19. When Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem, and as he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the place called Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples and said, go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find a young donkey tied there and on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, say this. Say this with me, church. The Lord needs it. And so those who were sent left and found out, or found it just as he told them. As they were untying the young donkey, its owner said to them, why are you untying the donkey, church? The Lord needs it. They said, then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their robes on the donkey, they helped Jesus get on it. As he was going along the way, they were spreading their robes on the road. And now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. The King who comes in the name of the Lord is the Blessed One. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, Teacher, Rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if they keep silent, the stones will cry out. So as we heard, Jesus travels the way of every Jew making the trek to Jerusalem for Passover. This particular story is the climax of his ministry before the cross. And he knows what awaits and chooses to face it head on. Though he never ceases announcing the kingdom, it's time for that announcement to come true. In a very specific way, he must embody in himself what he has been talking about. The living God is at work to heal and save. And just like Pharaoh and the armies of Egypt trying to prevent the Israelites from leaving, the powers and principalities of the reign of sin and death are working in opposition to Jesus' redemptive ministry. We know this. Jesus' journey into Holy Week will be a moment of God's new exodus. Say new exodus. That's how this is understood, is a new exodus, God's greatest Passover. Say Passover. And nothing's going to stop Jesus from making it happen. This is how the biblical story connects. So for Jesus, this is a royal occasion, one to be carefully planned so as to make the exact right point and call to mind the right Hebrew scriptures in the eyes and the ears of the participants. Jesus doesn't proclaim a faith that is disconnected from a heritage of faith, and we don't live a faith that is disconnected from a heritage of faith. And so knowing the story becomes important. So the animal he chooses points the Jews back to a prophecy of Zechariah, nine, chapter, nine, chapter 9, verse 9, where the righteous and victorious Messiah King in humility rides in celebratory procession on a young donkey, symbolizing peace. Obviously, it works well. The disciples and the Jesus followers play along the road of the royal celebration like we play it along spreads their robes along the road for him. They sing the psalm that we actually sang or read or chatted, chanted this morning, Psalm 118. It's a song of victory and praise that Jewish pilgrims would sing as they marched on to Passover into Jerusalem. Even still, the opposition to God's plan, God's journey, is this grumbling and working people 
to disrupt Jesus's journey and proclamation and understanding of what's taking place. And yet this morning we see Jesus as the one who comes to fulfill Israel's national hopes. Remember, these are a real people. This isn't just all spiritualized. And they're answering their prayers. They prayed for a king. They prayed for a faithful leader. Have you not done that? Jesus comes as the king who would bring peace to earth from the throne room of heaven. But we know the story. Something happens. Look at verse 41 of chapter 19. As Jesus approached and saw the city, read it with me, he wept over it. Read it again. He wept over it, saying, if you knew this day what would bring bring peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. For the days will come on you when your enemies will build an embarkment embankment against you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone on another in you, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. He went into the temple complex and began to throw out those who were selling. And he said, it's written, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it the den of thieves. And every day he was teaching in the temple complex, the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people who were looking for a way to destroy him, but they could not find a way to do it. They were looking for a way to mess up God's plans, but they could not find a way to do it because all the people were captivated by what they heard. For thousands of years, Jerusalem has slain prophet after prophet. Prophets have preached and lamented Israel's rebellion to God's reign. Israel did not like their message of obedience to God's reign, to covenant faithfulness. Say covenant faithfulness. Israel Israel didn't like that. They wanted to covenant their own way. They wanted to live into the promises of God their own way. And they did not want the things that make for peace. Instead, they wanted to continue in self-reliance. Say self-reliance. Entitlement. Say entitlement. And misplaced hopes. Say misplaced hopes. They wanted that, which resulted in more violence, more fear, more idolatry, more rebellion. And despite the words of the Hebrew prophets, like Isaiah, who used words that we know to be gospel, good news. Isaiah used that language. Gospel is the language of the Old Testament too. He stood up to speak to God's people Judah, stuck in Babylon. Sound familiar? Stuck in Babylon. Declaring that that the world power of Babylon is not what they think, and Babylon's king is not who they think. But God is still God. That's what Isaiah says. Isaiah 40, verse 9, Zion, herald of good news, go up on a high mountain, Jerusalem, herald of good news. Good news meaning gospel. Raise your voice loudly. Raise it. Do not be afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, say it with me, here is your God. Later he said, and listen closely to what Isaiah calls gospel or good news. You'll find it rings very familiar to the gospel Jesus preached. Listen, Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the herald who proclaims peace, who brings news of good tidings, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, say it with me, your God reigns. Of course, God's people weren't having it. 
So the prophets turned to lament, to weeping. Now it's Jesus' turn to weep and lament. You see that? In the spirit of Isaiah, Jesus says, if you only would believe that my gospel could bring peace. But they didn't. And tears of lament streamed down the face of God. If you love God, if you love Jesus, can you see this? Can you see Jesus weeping? Tears of lament seem, they seem like a theme in Luke's gospel. Have you ever paid attention? The widow of Nain who lost her son, tears of lament. Jairus, whose, whose daughter was dead, tears of lament. Others, Jesus finds in distress and pain, wanting healing and new life, tears of lament. We even see Jesus distressed as he reached out to deaf ears that were created to hear and blind eyes that were created to see and mute mouths that were created to speak, but because of a sin-stained world bent on rebellion and stubbornness, the purposes of God, and the subjection of violence and fear, these ears and eyes and mouths were broken, and now we see Jesus looking over the city and he weeps. If you love Jesus, can you see him weep? Seems like we forget that Jesus' tears are also at the core of the Christian gospel. This was not a moment of weakness. It's not something a Messiah king should avoid. Again and again during Jesus' ministry, he warned of God's judgment coming to Jerusalem and the Holy Temple because they, like many of the towns Jesus visited in Galilee, had resisted his call for obedience and covenant faithfulness. And if they would have just heard it, church, if they would have just heard it, they would have experienced the well-being of God. But they put their hopes in another. Unless you repent, Jesus would say. You'll perish, Jesus would say. And here we find Jesus looking over the city where the ones that shout, Hosanna, Lord, save us! Just a few days later will be the ones who shout what? Crucify him! Here Jesus will face two different trials from two different powers. A religious trial held by his own people, led by the high priest, Caiaphas, and a political trial led by Pilate, the Roman governor. Two powers, religion and politics, all seeking to accomplish the same thing, to protect their power by whatever means necessary, even if it means intimidation and violence. All because they had become complicit to the powers and principalities of the reign of sin and death. Can you see it, church? I mean, can you, can, you, can you capture the story? I mean, when the temple, where it was once a holy place, a symbol of God's presence, we hear in what we read this morning that it had become an unholy place, a nationalistic symbol of pride and religious greed. The systems of religion and politics in Jesus' day could not move people farther from the peace of God's kingdom. It just couldn't happen. So no wonder Jesus weeps. Can you, can you see Jesus weep? Can you? No wonder God's judgment must come on the powers and principalities. The powers and principalities. 
It's like Paul said in the crucifixion of Jesus Messiah. Look at the text. Then Jesus made a public spectacle of all the powers and principalities of darkness, stripping away from every weapon, from them every weapon and all their spiritual authority and power to accuse. And by the power of the cross, Jesus led them around as prisoners in procession and triumph. We read this text like it's just a spiritual reality. We read this text and we love this text and we love to quote it when we feel sick. We love to quote it when we got something to say. We love to quote it when we want healing in our lives. We love to quote this text about Jesus' power over the principalities and powers. But we quote it outside of the story. This text only exists because Palm Sunday exists. And the principalities and powers aren't just the ones that make us sick. They're the ones who also dispel violence and fear in the world. They're the ones that, that beckon us to misplace our hopes and our dreams. So no wonder Jesus enters the temple to cleanse it of the greed and the pride and the misplaced power. God's judgment has to come. And Jesus is on the mountain weeping, proclaiming that this is the case. But this is the part we cannot miss. That it wasn't a judgment that came in the anger of God's vengeful violence. Have you thought about that? God's judgment had to come, but it came in weeping and lament. Say weeping and lament. We mustn't forget Jesus' tears. It was a judgment that had to come, but it came in holy, self-giving love. Say holy, self-giving love. In God's judgment, we mustn't forget Jesus' suffering. It was a judgment that had to come, but it came in a divine, humble sacrifice. Say divine, humble sacrifice. In God's judgment, we mustn't forget Jesus' scandalous trials and cruel death. So now it's what we call Palm Sunday. None like the crowds we know, but Jesus knows the pain and suffering that awaits us. We know that Jesus knows that if there's to be the possibility of life giving peace arising from a new kingdom where all are welcomed into God's presence, even you, even you and me, where life can be found, we know what Jesus knew, that there must be a new beginning. Say new beginning. A new start. A new start where dead hearts and minds can find life again. There must be a resurrection. And that's where the story begins to turn. But we want to move so quick to resurrection. But for there to be resurrection, there must be what? There must be death. Before there's Sunday, resurrection Sunday, there's what? There's Good Friday. That's why our church starting tonight is going to set up Stations of the Cross and leave it going on all week. So we can journey slowly and purposefully through the other part of the story that we like to ignore. The story of weeping and lament. And the story of death. Because you can't have resurrection if you don't have death. And we hear it this way. We hear it a day or so later in John's telling of the same timeline. That's what John writes, John 12. 
Verse 20. Now some Greeks were among those who went up to worship at the festival, so they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and requested of him, sir, we want to see Jesus. And that's us, right? That's it. We just say, we come, we come on Sunday and we say, I just want to see Jesus. Brad, just give me Jesus. I just want to see Jesus. Is that what you say? You wake up in the morning and say, I want to see Jesus. Philip and went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus replied to them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I assure you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces a large crop. The one who loves his life will what? Will lose it. And the one who hates his life in this world, the one who places his or her hope somewhere else, the ones whose loyalty and allegiance isn't to the things of this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. My soul is troubled. Jesus said, my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour. That is why I came to this hour. Glorify your name. Jesus takes an opportunity to preach. He wants us to understand. And he knows what many of us often forget. Say forget. The path of resurrection only comes through death. This is what we're supposed to remember during Holy Week. See, Palm Sunday reminds us that our shouts of Hosanna, Lord, save us, does not come true without death. The kingdom of God does not come to us without a certain kind of death. Hey, what death do you need to die? What needs to die in you? You want something practical? What needs to die in you? Where have you placed your hopes that are very clearly just of this world? See, the kingdom of God does not come to us without a certain kind of death where our current understandings of the way things are ordered, the way, the way the world works. How many times you heard somebody say, that's just how the world works? Raise your hand if you ever heard it said, that's how life works. Raise your hand if you ever said it. That's what needs to change. It's the way the world works. It's the way life is. That's what needs to change. The shouts of Hosanna, Lord, save us. Turning into shouts of crucify him in just a few days should remind us that the current order of things are ultimately under the influence of the powers and principalities subject to the reign of sin and death. And Jesus riding on a young colt 
reminds us of a new ordering of things, a new way of understanding life based upon new priorities and a new understanding of how the world should work. And one day when Jesus returns, will work. This can be an announcement of good news. If we would just learn, if we would believe, if we'd believe, if I would believe, this could be an announcement of good news, something the New Testament sums up and even Isaiah would sum up in a word called what? Gospel. See, it is gospel because it declares that the reality of God's existence and his coming to us in King Jesus tells us that the world is not as we thought it was. That the world is not as it was we thought it was. The world is not as it was described to us growing up. That God is still present. He's, he's here. He's at work. But like Israel living under the power of a foreign power, we're prone to resist this declaration even though we come to church on Sundays. We want new life. We want a new start. We want a new beginning. We want resurrection, but what? we don't want death. Man, we don't want death because I like this thing too much. I've believed this thing all my life. I've staked my hope in this thing. I've given what I have to this cause. I've studied hard for this that got me that. I've worked too hard to have this. The gospel becomes good news to us only when we believe that the way things are should be completely reordered in light of what Jesus says where the first is willing to be what? When the powerful is willing to release their power. When the poor finds riches and the rich find poverty. When love does no wrong to a neighbor. When fear finally gives way to love. becomes good news to us only when God's people choose to become servants to, are you ready? Everyone. Including, are you ready? Enemy. When God's people are ready to extend God's royal hospitality to, are you ready? Any. Jesus calls this good news because we're no longer left to our own resources. How's that been working for me? My own resources. How's that been working for you? It's good news that we don't have to do that. But we've got to have death if we want life. This is good news because we're no longer held captive by the lie that freedom, say freedom, equals autonomy and self-sufficiency. Oh, that won't preach well in Philadelphia or Williamsburg, colonial Williamsburg, will it? Where life is all up to us. This is good news because we no longer have to believe that we are in control and can somehow manage life. It's good news but only if there's death. Death to fear. Death to hatred. 
death to false freedoms that promote self-sufficiency and autonomy, death to all other loyalties, death to violence, death to self. The grain falls out and dies. It bursts new life. See, in this death, because of Jesus' death, it comes when we hear the words of Jesus in the opening lines of Mark, who testified. Read it with me up here on the screen. Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. You want something practical? Then what have you been giving your life to? Does it reflect? The life-giving, shalom-bringing, good news of the Christ who comes in on the donkey of peace? Or does it reflect the self-sufficiency, autonomy, personal pursuits and right to happiness, of entitlements of the fake king coming in on the war horse? Because remember all that stuff we did? Remember that game we played earlier? See, the world as God describes it, that is coming true. We can need to live in light of getting ready for that. Or we can resist it. But you can't get both. We can either have a Christianity that's all about me. Me, 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 me. My, 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 my. Or Christianity that's really about what God is about, which is us. And that involves me. It's not about me. It's hard to forget. Hard to remember sometimes. Though. See, the good news tells us that God is the freedom giver. Say freedom giver. He's the exile ender. Say exile ender. He's the homemaker. Say homemaker. He's the life bringer. Say life bringer. God is the freedom giver, exile ender, homemaker, and life bringer in a society held captive to the anxiety, exhaustion, violence, and displacement promoted by the reign of sin and death. But we must repent and believe. So what does this mean? All right, this is where I end. If Jesus is Savior, the proper response means trust in His saving work. Say trust. Come on, stay with me. I'm going to talk about faith for a minute. If Jesus is Savior, then faith, the proper response, faith then in that context of Jesus as Savior means what? Trust in His what? Saving work. If Jesus is Lord, then faith, say faith, means a worship and bow down. Say worship and bow down. Because that is the proper response you make toward a Lord. If Jesus is Savior, saving faith is trust in the saving work. If Jesus is Lord, saving faith results in worship and obedience, our worship and honoring and bowing down to that Lord. If Jesus is King, then what's the proper response to the King? Allegiance. Loyalty. 
That is faith in Jesus as King. Faith in Jesus as Savior, trust. Faith in Jesus as Lord, worship. Faith in Jesus as King, loyalty. So when we believe in Jesus and talk about faith in Jesus, this is what the Christian must mean. Trust, worship, loyalty. The proper response to faith, because faith is placed in someone, the proper response to faith has to be defined by who Jesus is. And if he is Savior and Lord and King, the proper response is trust and worship and allegiance. Not one of these three saving understandings can be left out of our understanding. See, as King, Jesus is reversing salvation history beginning in the old creation story. Do you remember that? In the creation story, Adam and Eve chooses disobedience in the Garden of Eden. In the Holy Week story, Jesus chooses what? Obedience in the garden of where? Gethsemane. Gethsemane. I want you to see how the Bible works. Just for a minute. Just bear with me. I'm close. See how the Bible works. I need you to see that knowing the story matters. Knowing this better than just quoting a little verse every now and then on sort of a Christian fortune cookie. Like that's not going to cut it anymore, man. That's not going to cut it if we're talking about trust and worship and allegiance. It's not going to cut it. We need to know the story. We got to know how the story works. The world that God is describing and the way that it's been redescribed in the risen Jesus who was crucified for the sake and salvation of the world. The creation story tells us that Adam and Eve begin in God's presence, a divine paradise, but are forced outside of the gates due to the curse. The Holy Week story tells us that even as the writer of the book of Hebrews 13 verse 12, if you're taking notes, 13 verse 12 reminds us that Jesus suffers and dies outside of the gates, but ends up in paradise so that we might experience God's presence. A reality Jesus referred to on the cross when talking to the thief that believed, divine paradise. The creation story tells us that Adam and Eve hid behind a tree, naked, covered in shame for what they had done. The Holy Week story tells us that Jesus hung on a tree, naked, shamed, but conquered shame, despite what was done to him. Jesus makes his way in this processional of triumph. He not only reverses the creation story with a new creation story, but he also reverses how the world will actually work. He's reordering our understanding of love and peace and power. And so we go back to the words of Paul as we close. Up here, read it with me if you will. Then Jesus made a public spectacle of all the powers and principalities of darkness, stripping away from them every weapon and all their spiritual authority and power to accuse us. And by the power of the cross, Jesus led them around as prisoners in a procession of triumph. Kings may come and continue to come to their people on horses of warfare by intimidation to demonstrate their power and might with violence and tactics of fear and all. But if you're a Christian, you have confessed that your king, like your king, our king, comes to us on a donkey of peace to demonstrate his power and might with self-giving love and tactics of humility and servitude. The good news to us is that God comes riding on a colt 
<laughs> no wonder why Paul said it was absurd. In a royal procession, to declare that he alone is the freedom giver, the exile ender, the homemaker and life bringer in a society and to a life held captive, to a life, to you and to me, held captive by anxiety and exhaustion, violence and displacement. All of that promoted by the reign of sin and death. And we have to repent and believe. On this day, almost 2,000 years ago, Jesus' disciples celebrated the wondrous works of Jesus and the promise of a new world. In him, they saw a glimpse of the blessed one. This morning, do you find yourself as a disciple on the road from the Mount of Olives celebrating the blessed one? Are you ready to sing songs of praise? Or are you ready to sing songs of praise as long as he's only doing what you want him to do? Or will you repent and believe? Trust, worship, and pledge your loyalty for what he wants for the world, for us, trusting that it's better than anything we could attain for himself or for ourselves. Jesus is Savior. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. Jesus is calm. Come. He bids you, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. He bids all to come and die. So what are the things that you're holding on to that need to die? Bill Keeble has this beautiful liturgy all on his own. And I want to borrow it today. When Bill comes to the table, Bill stops. He holds out his hands. And he turns his hands around and places them on the table. And then he takes the bread and the cup. Ask Bill what that means. Bill said, I'm coming to God in Christ. And I am asking him to give me the power to let go of the things that I hold on to so that I may die to myself and I lay them at the table and I pick up the life of God in Christ. We're going to start the song. And when you're ready, I don't care how wonky the line gets, crying out loud, we didn't walk around the building in the rain. When you're ready, come to the table. And I want to invite you to the things that you're holding on to that you need to die to. Envision them in your hands. The need to work harder, to be more accepted by God. All those things that are grace opposed. False allegiances and hopes and fears and anger and betrayal. And I, want you, I want you to envision them in your hand. I want you to come to the table. I want you to let them down. Lay them on the table. And then take the bread and the cup leave them there.